Welcome to the Gospel Saves Podcast, a program that discusses all matters related to the Christian faith. Please visit thegospelsaves.me. You can also visit The Gospel Saves on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. I don't think it's an overstatement to claim that most folks in American evangelical churches have been invited to ask Jesus into their heart in order to be saved. And a lot of sincere, well-meaning believers in Jesus, convicted by their sin and seeking the grace of God, have offered the sinner's prayer in response. Upon closer examination, it becomes clear that the sinner's prayer is a very late development in the history of Christendom. No one was saying the sinner's prayer prior to the 1950s. This leads to an important question. Is the sinner's prayer in the Bible? But before we get into this, please help me out. I want the gospel of Jesus Christ to reach as many people as possible. If you're watching this video on YouTube, please hit the subscribe and that little bell icon to receive updates when I upload new content. If you're listening to the Gospel Saves podcast on Apple or Spotify, please consider giving me a five-star rating and writing a review. When you do one of those simple things, you help the big tech algorithms notice my content. I can't do this without your help, so please help me preach the good news of Jesus to as many people as possible. All right, let's talk about the sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer is a rather late development in the history of Christendom. We can trace the history of the sinner's prayer back to a few influential American preachers in the 18th and 19th centuries. In the mid-1700s, Eleazar Wheelock developed a technique he called the mourner's seat. He reserved the front bench of the church for sinners who became the subject of his attention throughout the sermon as salvation loomed over their heads. In the 19th century, a preacher by the name of Charles Finney promoted the use of an anxious seat, a pew on the front row of a church meeting house where penitent sinners would sit during the sermon as they awaited baptism. Finney's method was criticized for its manipulative nature, so Dwight Moody, another 19th century preacher, developed the inquiry room. Penitent sinners would meet with counselors privately to study about salvation, after which they would pray together. In the early 20th century, a preacher from Chicago, Billy Sunday, developed his own spin on these techniques. Billy Sunday popularized what has come to be called crusades, preaching to large crowds in a tent or other venue. At the close of a fire and brimstone come to Jesus message, Billy Sunday would offer salvation to those in need and offer a prayer. Sometimes he would invite the penitent to walk to the front of the assembly. Later on, Billy Sunday began shaking the hands of the penitent, claiming that shaking his hand signaled their intent to follow Christ, the idea of extending the right hand to fellowship. Billy Sunday also developed an influential tract entitled, Four Things God Wants You to Know. Now, Billy Sunday connects us to Billy Graham. 
Billy Graham, the famous crusader of the 20th century, was converted by a Billy Sunday-type crusade in 1935. As he began implementing the crusades pattern popularized by Billy Sunday, Billy Graham also adapted Sunday's tract, Four Things God Wants You to Know. Graham's formula was called Four Steps to Peace with God. At the conclusion of the four steps was a prayer. Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I open the door of my life and receive you as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for forgiving my sins and giving me eternal life. Take control of the throne of my life. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. This is the origin of what we now call the sinner's prayer. What I think this history lesson illustrates, and what I think will become more clear in a moment, is the sinner's prayer is a tradition developed and popularized in the last 100 years in the American evangelical community. Not only is the sinner's prayer a tradition without historical precedent, but it is also a tradition without biblical precedent. The only passage that connects prayer with salvation in any way is decidedly not a precursor to the sinner's prayer. In James chapter 5, verse 15, James says, And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Looking at the context of James 5.15, it's clear that James is addressing Christians. Is anyone among you sick? He asks in verse 14. The phrase among you must refer to Christians or the church. So these two verses tell Christians what to do if they are sick. They are to ask for the elders of the church to anoint them with oil and to pray for them. This prayer, James says, is the prayer of faith. According to 1 Corinthians 12, 9, there was a miraculous gift of faith listed alongside the gift of healing. Once the apostles passed away, these miraculous gifts faded from the church. So I find no reason to believe the prayer of faith that saves the sick sets a precedent for the sinner's prayer. These instructions were directed to Christians with an illness and not to sinners in need of salvation. Other than this very superficial connection in James 5.15, I find no other passage in the New Testament that connects prayer with salvation. Revelation 3.20 is a passage quoted by many to invite sinners to ask Jesus into their hearts. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Billy Graham's website tells me, you cross the bridge into God's family when you receive Christ by personal invitation. It goes on to tell me to receive, through prayer, Jesus Christ into your heart and life. The instructions quote Revelation 3.20 to justify praying the sinner's prayer. But here's the problem with Revelation 3.20. Jesus is talking to Christians, not to sinners in need of salvation. The church at Laodicea had grown lukewarm. Materialism and affluence had made them apathetic. Jesus knocking at the door is an invitation to these lukewarm Christians to repent. They have already received salvation, but their sins have placed their souls in danger. So using Revelation 3.20 as an invitation to sinners to receive salvation through prayer 
takes the passage out of context. The sinner's prayer is found in no conversions in the book of Acts. When Peter was asked, what shall we do to be saved in Acts 2.37, prayer is noticeably absent from the apostles' command in verse 38. Repent, be baptized, be filled with the Spirit. As Philip preached Jesus to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8.35, they happened upon some water. The eunuch expressed his desire to be baptized, so Philip baptized him and the convert went on his way rejoicing. Paul baptized both the household of Lydia and the household of his jailer in Philippi when they believed. And when Paul discovered the Ephesians had never heard of the Holy Spirit, he urged them to be rebaptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In all of these examples of conversion from the book of Acts, prayer, let alone the sinner's prayer, is never mentioned. The pattern laid out in Scripture is to believe, repent, be baptized, and receive the Spirit. Even the conversion of Paul, whose writings on grace and faith are quoted by practitioners of the sinner's prayer, even he had a remarkably different conversion experience. Paul had his come-to-Jesus moment on the road to Damascus. Blinded by the light, he was led by the hand to Damascus, where he spent three days fasting and praying. A disciple living in Damascus, Ananias received a message from Jesus by vision. Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Acts 9, verses 11 and 12. When Ananias found Paul, who had been praying for three days, here is what he said to him. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Acts 22.16 Paul had been praying for three days, but Ananias told him to stop waiting. Paul had been praying for three days, but he still had sins to wash away. Paul had been praying for three days, but he had not yet called on the name of the Lord. If prayer is how one receives Jesus into one's heart, why did Ananias say all these things to Paul? And remember, Acts 22.16 is Paul's personal account of his conversion in his own words. So Paul's conversion experience is remarkably different from the practice modeled by Billy Graham and others who have adopted the sinner's prayer. Here's my bottom line. Based on what I can see, the practice of asking Jesus into your heart appears to be a very recent, man-made tradition without biblical or historical precedent. This leads me to my final concern. The sinner's prayer is teaching salvation by works. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus confronts three works used by the Pharisees and scribes to demonstrate their righteousness, charitable giving, praying, and fasting. It is quite clear from the teachings of Jesus here and elsewhere that he considered prayer a work. If prayer is a work and one tells others to receive Jesus by the sinner's prayer, isn't the sinner's prayer by definition a work? I know many people who teach and practice the sinner's prayer are very concerned about receiving salvation by works. 
Now, I obviously have a slightly different view than some on the role of works in justification and salvation. You probably picked up on that in my comments on baptism. But I also hear your concern, and I think we all need to be careful and consistent when it comes to teaching on faith, grace, and works. What I find troubling about the sinner's prayer is the internal inconsistency. In an earnest attempt to avoid preaching salvation by works, the work of prayer has been adopted by man to be the mechanism to receive salvation. How can one claim we are not saved by works while preaching we must ask Jesus into our hearts through prayer? Prayer is a work. If I'm not saved by works, why am I told to pray the sinner's prayer? Thus, the sinner's prayer promises salvation on two mutually exclusive precepts. We ask Jesus into our hearts because we're not saved by works. If you believe you have been saved by asking Jesus into your heart, I humbly beg you to reconsider. I do not doubt the sincerity of your faith. I know many well-meaning, sincere people who are serving God in the best way they know who have asked Jesus into their hearts. But the sinner's prayer is a work, a man-made tradition without any precedent whatsoever. As I said earlier, I find neither biblical nor historical precedent for asking Jesus into one's heart. But don't take my word for it. I encourage you to study the matter out for yourself. Read the book of Acts. Look at all of the recorded conversions to see if any of them hint of asking Jesus into your heart. Don't stop there. Look up in a Bible concordance the words sinner, sin, prayer, pray, save, salvation to see if there is any connection between prayer and salvation. Look online for information about the development of the sinner's prayer. All of my information came from reputable sources that you can verify for yourself. Then compare your own conversion experience with what you read in the book of Acts, and if it's different from what you read, then I encourage you to do something about it. Thanks for listening to the Gospel Saves podcast. If you found this program useful, please visit thegospelsaves.me to find blogs, videos, and Bible studies. If you enjoyed the music on this podcast, please visit acapeldridge.com. You can also find Acapeldridge on Apple Music, Google Play, Spotify, YouTube, and Facebook. May God bless you as you seek to know His perfect will.